0: much uh, public speaking. You probably uh, enjoy doing it when you are well rested, right? So this morning uh, after a week of camp, I got up and I immediately, after getting in the van with Jana and Shelby, I immediately regret driving. I was just tired and I thought, why did I drive? Why didn't I just let you? Well, Jana was at camp too. And then uh, I just felt tired. I felt like you know, do you ever feel so tired, you, let, you feel like there's fog sitting on your, it's kind of how I was, uh, I was feeling, and so even when I saw a police officer just about, you know, 20 yards in front of me, and I was coming to a stop sign, not that I shouldn't just come to a complete stop always, I thought, you know, okay, there's the police officer, and, and uh, you know, I'm going to just be the law-abiding citizen that I am, and then I failed to completely stop, and I just rolled through the stop sign and continued on. That's not real smart. It's not a real smart thing to do, and I think it was just from the awesome week of camp that we had, and I just want to thank the church here for your part uh, and uh, the, the young people's part in Apologetics Press Week at Indian Creek Youth Camp. As I was sitting down looking at, at Will up here, I thought, you know, Will and Davis, they were only two counselors in a cabin of 28 people. They, there were 26 young men in their cabin, and they were the head counselors there, Will being the seasoned veteran head, head counselor, and Davis being the mature, younger counselor. And uh, I'm not saying he's more mature than Will. I'm just saying, you know, for a young first-time counselor, I thought he did a, a very good job. And so I thought, hey, they're up there leading tonight, and I know they had uh, they have some weariness in them. But it is a it was a blessing to be with about 280 people throughout the week. We had over 300 at times with visitors. We had... Uh, kids from 10 different states, from about 60 plus different congregations. And I think it was the biggest week that Indian Creek ever had. And so uh, I thank you all for encouraging your young people to go. Uh, for those who helped, and there were several adults who came from this congregation. Uh, it was a blessing from from my vantage point, and I think from others it was the, the best week we'd, we'd ever had. Maybe we say that every year. But tonight we're talking about uh, God's might in creation. A few years ago, in Time Magazine, there was an author who interviewed Dr. Richard Dawkins, who's probably the most well-known atheist in the world. And in that interview, Dawkins made a curious statement, and he's known to make statements like this, but he said, uh, if there is a God, it's going to be, notice he said it, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. So here is an atheist who rejects the existence of God, and especially the God of the Bible. But talking about all religions, he says, hey, you know, if there is a God, and he doesn't believe that there is, but if there is, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. Now, the fact of the matter is, 99% of so called gods. Yeah, the truth is, they are not what the God of the Bible is. We've seen this throughout history. They're false gods. They're not true gods. And whether we're talking about the gods of Egypt that God pronounced, that the all-powerful God pronounced judgments against in part to show His greatness over them, said Moses in Exodus chapter 12 and later in Exodus chapter 18. He was against all the gods of Egypt it was shown over their God of sun or their God of life or all the other gods that they had, the God of the Nile. God's ten plagues upon them showed His greatness over them. Years later, God showed His greatness against the, uh, the um, prophets of Baal and their god Baal. And how 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, they were cutting themselves, they were crying out to their false god. And you recall at the at the end of that narrative there in 1 Kings 18, when people saw that Jehovah God consumed the sacrifice of Elijah, they began to fall on their faces and say, Jehovah, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. God has, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has truly identified Himself and has shown Himself throughout history as the... Mighty, as the Almighty God, as one who is in a very real in a, in a sense incomprehensible. That is, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed to us, some of which is revealed to us in nature. And much is revealed to us in His Word. They belong to us and to our children. And we can understand these things and we can come to a knowledge of the fact that wait a minute, it makes perfect sense to believe in an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient God. But I'm convinced that a lot of people in this world, and it seems to me even a lot of Christians... By the way, this seems kind of weird to be preaching up here and there's so much room between me and you guys. It's like all the kids left and I feel like I need to be up here about 15 rows. But we live in a day and time where we spend so much of our time and energy on mundane things. And so much of our mental energy, so much of our um, just time of, of meditating on things, we're meditating on things that ultimately, oftentimes, that ultimately don't matter. I can't help but think, and sadly so, that so many in the world are that way and that so many in, in, in God's kingdom that we are less prepared that we are less motivated, that we are less energized because we spend so much time on our phones, because we spend so much time uh, on social media, because we spend so much time watching television, because we spend so much time uh, going to sporting events. Obviously, none of them these things in and of themselves being wrong. But we spend so much time in meditating on these things that... There's a couple of huge things that we don't meditate near as much on, and that is His Holy Word, Psalm 1, and, as we're talking about tonight, His creation. You know that when we meditate as Christians on God's natural revelation, His natural world, the realm in which we live, if we come to that with an open, honest heart, we will come to see... As the title of the lesson indicates, his might. His might that is discovered in creation. I I tell you what, instead of just reading Romans chapter 1, verse 20, go ahead and open up your Bibles there and and let's get a little bit of context here. You recall the awesome verse there in, in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed. Paul says of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power. Even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not identify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Prophetic wise they became fools. Paul says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, they're actually clearly seen. And they can be clearly seen, they can be understood by the things that are made. That is, we, the context There's there, it's not it's not of inanimate objects, it's not of animals, it's not of angels, it's human beings. Human beings can come to understand some things about God even through the created realm. Even coming to understand His eternal power, His omnipotence, His might. First of all, mighty God... And His almightiness is seen, it's reflected in the very fact that there is a material realm. You know, where did everything come from? Did it it come from the supernatural or the natural? From a big bang or from an infinite mighty God? How did everything get here? That is, the earth and our solar system and the universe as a whole. Where did everything come from? Naturalists have attempted to explain this. What you see on the screen behind me is an article from several years ago when uh, David Shiga attempted to explain the origin of the universe. And in the article, he's an atheistic evolutionist, and in the article he gives, well, maybe this is the explanation, maybe maybe uh, over here, maybe this is the explanation. Or, And he gave several possibilities or models of the origin of the universe. And then he got to the end of his article, and this is what this atheistic evolutionist, concluded. He said, The most likely outcome, however, is that none of the models will be proved correct anytime soon. Indeed, the quest to understand the origin of the universe seems destined to continue until we can answer a deeper question. And that is, from a naturalistic, atheistic perspective, why is there anything at all instead of nothing? I appreciated the honesty in asking this question. Why, if at one point in time... If from the perspective of an atheist, there was no God, there is no God, and at one time there was no material realm, then how did the material realm get here? Matter is not eternal. So says the second law of thermodynamics. Matter does not create itself. So says the first law of thermodynamics. Those are laws that we... Uh, that are based upon what we see every day in nature. So this atheist says, wait a minute, why is there anything at all instead of nothing? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 is one of the most logical statements you will ever read. Because a natural realm does not pop into existence from nothing, and the natural realm has not always been in existence. Think about this. If atheistic evolutionists actually believe that the natural realm has always been in existence, why do they try to explain the beginning of the natural realm via the Big Bang? You know, I love that the psalmist... You know, the book of Psalms, so many statements are commentary on uh, Genesis. Genesis. You know, you can read in Psalm 33, for example, about how the heavens were made by the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord, by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, verse 6, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. Let all the earth, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Well, in in this passage, it's because of the psalmist reflection of His creation. You know, one reason, as we said a few minutes ago, hinted at, one of the reasons there may be less awe in houses of worship today might be in part because we're so distracted with all of the hustle and bustle and oftentimes mundane things of life that if we were to contemplate a little bit more like we are trying to tonight on the fact that the Word of the Lord created the material realm for He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He commanded. He spoke the material realm into existence. That's how awesome our God is. And the heavens declare, the psalmist said, the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech, and night the night reveals knowledge. Psalm 19:1 and 2. And he goes on to say in verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That is, anyone and everyone around the world should be able to look up and to see the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God. That the firmament, using synonymous parallelism here, it's the same thought stated with different words. The heavens, their voice has gone out through all the world. Verse 4, you read, their line or their voice has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. There's not an accountable person on earth who has an excuse for not coming to an understanding of the truth that there must be a mighty God who made this material realm. I'm going to skip this for the sake of time. You know, uh You've probably heard something similar to this through the years, but let me just remind you of a little encounter that an older woman had with a young man. One day a young skeptic said to an elderly lady, I once believed in God, but since studying science, I'm convinced that God is but an empty word. The lady replied, well, I have not studied science, but since you have, maybe you can tell me from whence came this egg. The young man said, why, of course, from the hen was the reply. And where did the hen come from? Why, the egg, he said. And perhaps, said the lady, you can tell me which existed first. The hen, of course, rejoined the young man. You mean that the, young, that the hen existed without having come from an egg? Oh, no, said the young man. I should have said the egg was first. Then, the, then you mean that an egg without having come from a hen? The young man cried, you've got me all mixed up. She drove home her point. Young man, since you can't explain the existence of even a hen or an egg without God, you can't expect me to believe that you can explain the existence of the whole universe without Him. Where did the material realm come from? Well, I don't believe this merely and only because the Bible says it because we first have to come to believe that there is a God before we come to believe that the Bible is His Word. That's the logical order of things. But you know what the Bible points out? is there must have been a maker of the material realm. For every house is built by someone, but He who built all things is God. Both heaven and earth reveal that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible, Hebrews 11.3. Rather, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, He not only created the heavens and the earth, but Hebrews 1 and verse 3 indicates that He is upholding, that he upholds, the ESV says, the universe with the word of his power. So even to this very moment in time, he is upholding what he created thousands of years ago, which is evidence of an awesome, mighty God. Well, some might logically, in a sense, logically, yes, and I say logically because it, in a sense it's illogical. But in another sense, I guess I can understand since we live in a natural realm where there are beginnings and endings of life, of material things, and really, it's not strictly a beginning and ending of material things because in nature, matter and energy are neither created nor destroyed. That's that first law of thermodynamics. But as far as people go, we're here and then we're gone. Well... Then where did God come from? He created the material realm. Well, then who created God? You ever been asked this question before? Well, I can understand why people ask it again because we just live in this beginning and end kind of thing. And it, 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 it's almost just puzzling. And you can, you know, it's you can't really wrap your mind around the eternality of our God. However, there is a sense in which, by definition, this is an illogical question. Where did God come from? What caused God? It's illogical because it's like asking, why is matter eternal? Oh, matter's not eternal. It's like asking, when did eternity begin? Or when will eternity end? Well, eternity, by its definition, does not begin or end. By definition, an all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God. I believe it's 33:27. Psalm 90, verse 2. Eternal God has no beginning and has no end. By the very definition, the question, though I understand why we ask it, because of this natural realm in which we live, logically speaking, common sense tells us, The question is not really an accurate question given the definition of the word. Secondly, God is not material. He's spiritual. He's outside of the material realm. He's outside of the laws of nature. He actually created the laws of nature. Secondly, mighty God not only made the material realm, He made the animate realm. He made life. He made all sorts of life. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this is an amazing proof and evidence for the existence of an awesome, almighty, powerful God. I mean, th- think about this for a moment. Have you ever, and probably not, because it would be ridiculous, looked at a, let's just say we walked outside tonight and we were looking at a rock. Just a, just a big rock. Maybe you're moving this big rock from one part of your yard to another part. Maybe you've been out west and you've climbed some big rocks around the Grand Canyon and such. Just imagine your shock. All of a sudden, you saw such an inanimate object become animated. We're not talking about a cartoon. I mean, if you were to see that, you would think you're going crazy. You would think someone had slipped something into your Coke or Dr. Pepper or sweet tea. You would think that you were witnessing, well, maybe a miracle. Because that does not happen. Think about in the beginning when there was no life. Not on day one. Not on day two. And then seeing plants come into existence. And then continue to grow. And see life created on days five and day six. The miracle of the creation of life is evidence of an almighty, awesome God. You know, there was a professor a few years ago by the name of Dr. Robert Hazen. You can see some of his uh, educational accolades and so forth. He is probably more well-versed in evolutionary biological life, how life allegedly evolved, than any other evolutionist that I've ever heard or read about on earth today. In fact, he he taught a course for the teaching company, a 24-lecture course, which we have at our offices at Apology Express. And and, and the whole course was on, basically, where did life come from? And he's an atheistic evolutionist. I want you to see a few things that he said here. He said, uh, this course is unusual because at this point in time, there is so much we don't know about life on earth. The origin of life is a subject of immense complexity. I have to tell you right up front, we don't know how life began. It's as if we're trying to assemble a huge jigsaw puzzle. We have a few pieces clumped together here and there, but most of the puzzle pieces are missing. How can I tell you about the origin of life when we are so woefully ignorant of that history? Well, atheistic evolution is ignorant. And those who adopt that theory are ignorant of the origin of life. They have no clue. In fact, he went on to say in this series of lectures he said if the origin of life was an infinitely improbable accident which it must be if evolution is true then there's absolutely nothing you or anyone else can do to figure out how it happened i must tell you that's a depressing thought to someone like me who has devoted a decade to understanding the origin of life can you imagine 10 years of your life being spent trying to figure out how nothing became something and how something animate Inanimate became animate, became living. How a rock came to life. I mean, that's basically what atheistic evolution must try to prove because at one time, allegedly, there was no life. At one time, there was just these before, you know, after there was nothing, there were dust particles floating around. And then you have this big ball of this and that, and eventually you have the earth come about four point allegedly, 4.5 billion years ago. And then, you know what's interesting? Do you know what atheism requires, though it's so rarely, if ever, admitted? For atheism to be true, there must be miracles. Because you can't get something from nothing, and you can't get life from non-life, and you can't get design from non-design. You can't get intelligence from non-intelligence. And you can't get morality from immorality or from amorality. But you see, they have to deny miracles because they deny the existence of God. God evolutionist Paul Davies said in 2006, one of the greatest outstanding scientific mysteries is the origin of life. How did it happen? The truth is no one has a clue. Nobody has a clue. In fact, they are so clueless, and I say this, not making fun, but just stating facts. They're so clueless about this that several years ago there was a man who wrote an article for Scientific American titled, Don't Tell the Creationists, The scientists don't have a clue how life began. But the editor didn't like it, and he changed it. And then 20 years later, when the former editor was gone, the author simply reused the original title for an online article he wrote for Scientific American. I mean, think about it. After 20 years, 20 more years of research, atheistic evolutions admit they still don't have a clue how life began. But there's only two options. There's the naturalistic option, and there's the supernaturalistic option. And Dr. George Wald, a few decades ago, our time is rapidly getting away. I've got to move on here. Said the reasonable view was to believe in spontaneous generation, the only alternative to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation. There is no third position. You only got two, he says, and this guy's an evolutionist, or he was. He said, Most modern biologists, having reviewed with satisfaction the downfall of a spontaneous generation, that life could actually come from non life, allegedly, yet unwilling to accept the alternative to believe in special creation, are left with nothing. Nothing. And then he. He went on to say, I think a scientist has no choice but to approach the origin of life to a hypothesis of spontaneous generation. Well, where did life come from? Well, it's easy. It's easy to conclude when you have the right information because you have accepted reason and truth. That is, that there must be a supernatural creator who specially created it all. Interestingly, the most famous atheist of the second half of last century, Anthony Flew." probably the most famous atheistic philosopher in the world. You recall he debated our brother Thomas B. Warren back, I believe it was in 1976, in Denton, Texas. He co-authored a book near the end of his life titled, There is a God, in which he concluded the only satisfactory explanation for the origin of such indirect and self-replicating life as we see on earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. Well, how did life get here? Once you to come to know that God exists and that the Bible is His Word, it's quite evident In fact, we could conclude this, even without the Bible, that there must be a supernatural miracle worker who created life because in nature, life does not come from non-life. That's a scientific law called the law of Biogenesis. But we also have the fact that God has revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1 that God created every living thing according to their kind. God, as Paul taught in Acts 17 in Athens, that God is the giver of life. You know, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6 and verse 3, is uh, is a great passage. Chapter 6, you recall, we are given the opportunity to see a little bit of the, the throne room of God. And you recall, this these particular words, we sing them oftentimes. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The second part of this verse, a lot of people, we uh, we omit, we don't really, well, maybe we don't spend much time on, but tonight I'd like to just draw attention to the fact that we read God not only is holy, but that this His holiness and our devotion to Him is in part because we have come to the conclusion that He exists and that He is the Almighty God because the whole earth is full of His glory. Going back to Romans chapter 1, Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead seen by the things that are made. We read here, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I mean, from 18 to 20 foot tall giraffes that have a neck that is 6 or 7 feet long, and yet they only have, they have the same number of vertebrae as we do, or neck bones as we do. They're just a whole lot bigger and a whole lot longer. They can run faster than Usain Bolt. They can drink more water than a camel can. They have tongues that they can, you know, that can come out of their mouths that are about 18 inches long. I mean, when I look at the giraffe, I think our, the creator of the giraffe is something magnificent. When we study the fossil record and see that there was once a flying creature that once lived on this planet that God created that had a wingspan, and I'm not making this up, that fossilologists, paleontologists say was 40 feet long. This creature was a flying machine, if you will, that, was, that had a wingspan as long as some small airplanes. Here is a reconstruction of Quetzalcoatlus. I mean, we have creatures that once lived on this earth that had teeth the size of bananas. Argentinosaurus, you can see a recreation of this, a model of this, in the Fernbank Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. And based upon their studies, they found backbones and diggings there in Argentina. They found vertebrae that were five feet high. In fact, i got a picture of it right here that could grow to weigh 110 tons or so and be about 126 feet long. But those 110 tons kind of pale in comparison to what God made on day five of creation when He made the whales, and specifically here the blue whales. That could weigh nearly twice as much as Argentinosaurus that had a tongue so big that several human beings could stand on it at one time. A heart that weighs over a 1,000 pounds, a a model of it was on display. I believe this was from down in New Zealand. That is about the size of a very, very small car, the heart of this creature. You know, when you see the giraffe or you see Tyrannosaurus rex or Argentinosaurus or the blue whale, you can't help but be amazed by our God. And it should drive us, as the psalmist did, to declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all people. Isn't it interesting that God gave us the book of Job and He told us about Job's amazing and sad suffering, if you will, and how Job was unaware of why all of these things happened to him. And throughout the book of Job and his speeches, you read all the... The questions that Job had, you know, why was this happening to him? His friends were alleging that he had committed all these terrible, heinous sins. And Job claimed his innocence and he wanted a meeting with God. And you read this throughout the speeches and you finally get to the end of the book, to the climax of the book of Job. And you, if you're reading it for the first time, and I don't remember the first time I ever read it, but if you were to give the book of Job to someone who knew nothing about it and they were reading through the book of Job... I have no doubt what they would be wondering, what they would be thinking, once you got to where God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. In chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. Because you're you're getting set up, if you will, to have the question answered, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering? And what does God say to Job? Well, to paraphrase it, in chapter 38... 39, 40, and 41. He says, I'm the creator of the universe. I'm the creator. I'm the all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of the universe, Job. Just trust me. Trust me. Earlier in the book, you recall, Job said, Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, that's what the omnipotence, the mightiness of our God should drive us to. At the end of this book, God speaks to Job continually about His creation. In Job chapter 38, most of that chapter about His inanimate creation about all these physical, non-living things. And then at the end of chapter 38 and all of chapter 39 and all of chapter 40, most of chapter 40, all of chapter 41, he talks about animals. Has that ever struck you as from kind of a finite human perspective being a little odd? Like, I want to know why I'm suffering and you're talking to me about animals. I mean, you're talking to me about a lion and an ostrich. A horse? A hawk? An eagle? Behemoth? And Leviathan? Where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, Job. Who determined its measurements? Chapter 40. Look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. Chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a... With a line, would, would you lower? Can you put a wreath through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will, will you make many supplications? Will he make many supplications to you, Job? Will he speak softly to you? Will you make a covenant? Will he make a covenant with you? He asks all these rhetorical questions. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Here's an awesome creature who could actually spew some type of fire and smoke out of his mouth. And this is what God says. No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up, Leviathan. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under the heaven is mine. God, excuse me, Job, what conclusion should you draw from all this? Well, this is the conclusion that Job drew. Job chapter 42 and verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 2, I know that you can do everything. He recognized what? Mighty God. And that was enough for Job. God's omniscience, he knows everything, God's omnipotence, He can do everything that's in accordance with His will. God's sovereignty over the natural realm should be enough for us to just trust Him. We don't have all the answers. I don't know why a friend of mine at Wetumpka right now is suffering from cancer that was just discovered a few weeks ago. We can't understand why a baby may pass from this life. We can't understand all the various sufferings that we go through any more than Job could. And he went through more than most anyone else we've ever known to walk this earth. And at the end of the book, you know what we conclude? You know what Job concluded? You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered, Job said, what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You you said, I I will question you and and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eyes sees you. He sees the almighty, all-knowing, sovereign, holy God. And that was enough. And it caused him to abhor himself and repent in dust and ashes. To bring this to a close, I know my time is up and it's time to have some refreshments. Let me just say this. God's omnipotence, real quickly, should humble us. God's omnipotence should humble us. You know, I believe it was Peter who says this, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God's omnipotence should humble us, number one. Well, as we close, to make some type of personal application to this lesson. God's alm- mightiness should humble us. God's mightiness should draw us to, to devote our lives to Him, to, to worship Him. Throughout the Psalms, what you see is the psalmist saying in many psalms, Oh God, you're the awesome God of the universe. You're the creator of all things. You can do all things. And you know what He was with the psalmist, not just David, but all the psalmists were drawn to do? To worship Him. You know what the mightiness of God should cause us to do? To realize that salvation is absolutely possible because of God. But it's absolutely possible. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the dunamis. It is the power. It is the dynamite. It is the power of God to salvation. God's Omnipotence in the realm of salvation. He wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, and some men count slackness, but as long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish. And He made the plan of salvation possible, sending His Son into the world so that every single one of us has no excuse to not be saved because of the power and love and grace of our God. And finally, let me just say, with God on our side, the all-powerful God of the universe, brothers and sisters, we have no excuses to be about His business and follow Him wherever He leads. You remember the, the story there in 2 Kings where there was the Syrian army who came around and uh, surrounded Elisha in his house. And his servant came out there and he was very scared. And then Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open. And this is what the text tells us there in 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elisha said these memorable words, Do not fear, for those who are with us are greater or more than those who are with them. Years ago, I read a story about Michael Jordan scoring 68 points in a basketball game. One of my favorite collegiate players when I was a kid was a man by the name of Stacy King played for the University of Oklahoma. He played for the Chicago Bulls and played in that very game. And for some reason, the newspaper reporter came over to Stacy King and interviewed him, having scored just one point that game, said, Stacy, how, how did you feel like you played tonight? He said, man, I played great. I played fantastic. He said, what do you mean you scored one point? He said, no, no, no. Michael Jordan and I scored 69 points tonight. With God on our side. With God on our side. We can do anything in accordance with His will. By His grace, by His mercy. Let's stop the excuses. And let's live the Christian life. And let's let our light shine. and Let's evangelize. and Let's edify. And let's build up the house of God. Let's be God's people. Will you bow with me please? Holy God, it is an awesome privilege to bow our head before the Creator of the universe. It's an awesome privilege to bow our heads before the One who created the material realm and all of it, who created life, who saved us through Jesus Christ and who has promised to be with His people. Even as we go and teach the lost, You have promised us that You will always be with us. So as the Hebrews writer says, help us to not forget knowing that you are with us and by our side. Please help us, Father, to realize the power that you have and the power that we have with you on our side and you with us. We pray that you would grant us courage and faith and faithfulness to the last breath we take. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As far as I know, we're dismissed.